Hello, everybody. My name is Juan Carlos, and welcome to OCR and Edited, where we highlight amazing coaches, athletes, and everyday people from the OCR and trail communities for fun, unscripted, educational, and unedited conversations. Today, I have the honor of speaking for a second time with Richard Diaz, founder and CEO, Diaz Human Performance, endurance sports performance coach, clinician, and author of Training the Dark Side. And you can see the book is right behind me, guys. Um, <laughs> Today, we're going to focus on his book, Training the Dark Side. Both the wife and I just finished reading the book. And like I said, uh, Richard, we've learned so much and the science behind running that we've never even considered before. Uh, my heads, um, my head, our heads were spinning, but in the best possible way. Thank you so much for joining me in the podcast, Richard. Uh, truly appreciate it. And I'm excited to chat with you. Uh, there's so much covered in the book. I think we need more than one conversation. So let's get started by you giving us a quick overview on the book. We will dive into the details as we go. Uh, you can tell, tell, can you tell me the premise of the book and why you decided it was important to write? Well, uh, man, <clears throat> there's no easy questions here today. <laughs> no. um, first of all, I have a question for you. Did your wife like it? Oh, yes, yeah, she did. She loved Great. it. Great. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. You know, I love did. the feedback because uh, when you release a book, you really put yourself out there, you know, and you, you never know how it's going to, how it's going to resonate with people. Sometimes you're going to get some bad publicity. Some people aren't going to love it. Um, and I was pretty nervous about it. And I think the, the, the most critical review I got was from my wife. Oh, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm historically terrible with grammar. I mean, I will misspell something. I'll forget a comma. <laughs> I, I always screw everything. So from a standpoint of liter literary genius, I'm not that guy. Um, but my wife is re my wife is really, really persnickety when it comes to the grammar and sentence structures and things like this. So the other day, and she waited till the paperback came out, I gave her a paperback copy. And she sat out by the pool the other day and was reading it. And I sat out by the pool, actually smoking a cigar and watching her read it nervous as hell and you know she got through like the first 20 30 pages and i said how am i doing she goes no it's great it's great and then i kept waiting and finally she closed it was done after a couple days or so and she liked it and i was done i'm like okay i'm That's safe great. <laughs> i'm safe so um <laughs> to answer your question um I started working with OCR and working with athletes in OCR. I think uh, my first encounter with OCR was Hunter McIntyre. And, uh, you know, we turned out we lived relatively close. He's about an hour away from me when he's in California. Okay. And uh, through the internet, he reached out to me. I didn't know who he was. Didn't know really anything about OCR. I think I ran into a few clients uh, prior to him that were, you know, professed to be you know, diligent, I should say, in obstacle course racing. And I really didn't give it any energy. I, I, I just really didn't think too much about the sport. And then Hunter got a hold of me and was explaining to me that he was interested in trying to uh, win the world championships. And I didn't even know there was such a thing. And uh, he explained to me what his problem was. And I revealed that information in the book, which was that you know, he's a big guy and he's racing somebody that's half his weight, nearly half his weight. And, uh, Bear with me. <laughs> and he, uh, 
he explained to me who he was and, you know, the fact that he was, you know, the top athlete in the, in the world at the time. And so I, I've run into so many different athletes in my career where they've approached me looking for help and um, from parts unknown, you know, I may not have any knowledge about who they were. So I Google, I typically will get on and Google the person to find out who they are. And sure enough, I started finding out that in fact, he was a, uh, a professional in the sport. Uh, and I define professional by your income. Let me see what your tax returns look like. And I'll let you know whether you're a professional or not. <laughs> okay. And, uh, you know, he, in fact, was, um, you know, earning wages that were his principal income. And, and um, you know, we got together and first get together, we, I think I did a VO2 max test on him, did some gait analysis on him, and I got to know him a little bit. And uh, I was really intrigued by his ability. Uh, I mean, he was an incredible athlete, still is. And, uh, you know, he kind of introduced me to the sport. And so um, we had been working together. I started coaching him on a pretty regular basis. And uh, it occurred to me that a lot of the athletes in the sport of OCR really didn't understand how to train. And my background uh, stems from triathlon and triathletes are geeks. They're, they're very anal about their approach to training um, there are uh, many, many, many very talented coaches in that sport, and there's a very broad understanding of the approach to training, and um, that seemed to be lacking in the sport of OCR. And it was interesting because it was Hunter who said to me, he said, he goes, you know what, if you play your cards right, you could end up being the number one coach in the world in this sport. And I and wrong. I looked at him like, what are you talking about, man? And I, you know, I didn't give it any energy, but um, the concept of training the dark side to me was, you know, when you pitch yourself against these insurmountable goals, and really get into this pain cave and how you deal with that, I thought that would be an interesting topic for a book. And I actually wrote a little bit of a program that was on my podcast uh, site. That was a free PDF people could download and, and follow the training. And a lot of people did. And it was termed training the dark side. But um, that were, you know, for a long time, this is kind of what I was intending to do was to write a, a book about lactate tolerance and what happens when you get over your threshold. And because, you know, I've got so many years involvement in, in that kind of work. Uh, I thought uh, I was I was capable of putting together a relatively decent book about what happens when you go over your threshold, when you're into the dark side. And, you know, years went by where I just couldn't seem to formulate my thought processes around how to deliver this information. And it was really starting to bother me. And we've done, I have done podcasts about, you know, what I refer to as training the dark side, being over lactate threshold, what it happens when you're there, how to contend with it, and all this kind of thing. But it just wasn't working for me. I just couldn't seem to pull the trigger on the, on the whole delivery of the information. And uh, then it just kind of dawned on me after actually writing a program for CrossFit athletes that there's more to what I'm trying to say. And it took, I'm serious when I tell you, it was frustrating for me. It took me 
I want to say that it's been about four years in the making for me to actually get to the place where I could write this book. And uh, I started to develop some very strong feelings about where I wanted to go with it after writing a training program for CrossFitters, which incidentally was very powerful. It did, uh, I have, I get comments and emails from people all over the world about the success they had by following that training program, which is completely contrary to typical training modalities in, in the sport. Um, but uh, the coronavirus came and now everybody was like dead in the water. We're locked down. We're, you know, we, and I said, you know what, here's an opportunity for me to sit down and get this thing done. And so I went to work on it and uh, I started thinking in terms, and by the way, if you watch me work, I have this uh, big pad of paper that's, uh, you know, I don't know, I guess it's about two and a half by three feet um, that I would lay out on my, my, my dining table with a bunch of different colored pens. And I started trying to etch out the way training would flow. You know, I, I'm very, uh, I'm very graphic when it comes to design. I think in terms of images and then from images, I develop concepts. And so I started messing around with this and I tried to formulate a path to try to deliver how you would approach, you know, this over threshold, under threshold, what you should do with it. And I actually watched a, uh, it was a TEDx. And uh, I think I referred to the gentleman in the book as uh, his name is very difficult to pronounce. Um, Michele, I can't pronounce his last name, but the, <laughs> he, he wrote, about flow and he and he was um discussing on this tedx the concept of flow in your lives and it was like somebody slapped me across the head i said this is exactly what i've been trying to do and then i started to think about all these little pieces that kind of formulated over time in my mind about well first of all I have tested th literally thousands of athletes. This is really ridiculous to say. It's hard for me to push it out of my mouth because it's hard to believe. But over the, the many years that I've been in this business, I've tested thousands of athletes, clinical evaluations of their metabolic consequence of work and how they respond to work, looking at the metabolic consequences. And um, I found athletes that it didn't make any sense. You know, they didn't have a really high threshold, which everybody aspires to get this really high anaerobic threshold. And they spend so much energy trying to develop the aerobic base and hoping that, you know, if they keep in this aerobic environment, that eventually it's going to push this wall further and further north into their performances. And to some degree, there's, there's truth to that. It does, it does do that. But there is a consequence of spending that much time aerobic. And so I started finding these athletes that could spend all of the work they do anaerobically and just be fine with it. And quizzically, people would look at it and go, well, why is that? What, why can this person do that? And everything they write about how to train to be a better athlete would suggest that you need to develop all this base conditioning to get to that place. And it's, it was a problem, it's a question, right? And I spoke of him briefly in, in the book, uh, Johnny G, who is the founder of the spinning program, who was one of my clients. And I did a VO2 max test on him. 
And it was interesting because he had been tested before me by someone else. And the, this person suggested his threshold was about 140 beats per minute and that um, his consequence of being above that 140 beats per minute was not sustainable. And Johnny held the, the record for the West Coast qualifier for the race across America as a cyclist. Uh, he was so fast over 24 hours that they started um, uh, testing him for, for uh, steroids and all kinds of things. And they, could, they came up clean. They couldn't find anything unique about this guy wow. other than the fact that he could hammer for 24 hours on that bike. And I tested him, and he doesn't even start to get into a rhythm until he's at 155 beats per minute, and he'll stay there for nine hours. And if you look at the information on paper, it doesn't make any sense because you look at the caloric expense. You look at the fact that there's, there's no likelihood that there's carbohydrate available to support that work. The likelihood that uh, fat utilization is in play, is, it, it's, it, it doesn't make any sense. So where is this energy coming from? Where is he getting the ability to produce this work where, in fact, it's, it's beyond the odds? Uh, and it wasn't the only time that I ran into that. And I mean, you know, I do these clinics all over the country and, and, and have been doing them for the last decade. And I, every now and then I'll run into somebody that they're, you know, they're saying there's no way. And for me to try to stay at 140 beats per minute or 130 beats per minute, whatever it was, would be like them walking. And they, they say, well, yeah, I can, I can go for four hours at, you know, 165 beats per minute and I'm fine. Where is this energy coming from? Hmm. And so the more research I did, I started to realize that these, there's these pathways that can be developed where you start to get access to uh, this um, conversion of lactate to glucose and refortifying your system through this anaerobic pathway. And so, I mean, it's getting long-winded and I apologize, but you, you know, it's, it's a difficult conversation. So what I started to look at was everybody is segregating. Everybody's saying, okay, be here for a length of time and then go here. Well, if you, if you, and I'm referring to base training. So if you spent, say, for example, 12 weeks aerobic because you're trying to develop your aerobic base, then you decide to shift away from that to go into greater intensity. All of the building blocks, all that base you develop starts to fall away as you go over threshold. So you start to subtract all the work you did early on. And that doesn't make any sense. And so what they're doing is they're looking at energy systems as being two counterparts, this one and this one, yeah. where in fact, there is a energy system and your body will respond to the way it's, it's developed. And so if you look at a training block and, and I, I'm guilty of my first book. If you look at it, you'll see I did exactly what most of the others have done is, okay, the first uh, phase of training, 80% of the time was dedicated to aerobic condition. And then as the phases went on, you got further and further into your anaerobic metabolism. You know, that was just, that was just cheating in my mind. That was me not thinking. That was me just following what others had done before me. And you know what? That is what's just very, very typical. It took, a lot of time and, and soul searching and data collection for me to look at this from a, from a much more holistic approach. And I started to realize that, okay, we, re, we do need to be 
prominently aerobic if we're going to be in the endurance world. But you don't want to discount the, the benefits of being anaerobic or developing your cardiovascular system. And you could do this all in the same day. And if you did it correctly, you could still manage to, to uh, control the influences in your training over the course of a week, a month, a year, or whatever, leading into an event. And so we started to flow. And, and I spoke about this in the book as well. I'm sure you're familiar with it is that, uh, I had a group of people that I had just done a VO2 max test on. I think there was about 25 people gathered. And this is typical. I'll, in a weekend, I'll test 25 athletes. And I've been doing this for, you know, not every weekend, but several times a year, I'll, I'll see uh, big groups of people that I've tested beyond the people that I test on my day-to-day -day basis. And I got a big dry erase board up. And I got my pen out and this was me being brave. I said, okay, here we go. Cause I know I was going to get some pushback. I expected it for sure. And then I started drawing this infinity symbol on the board and I just kept tracing my path. Right. And I just sat back, didn't say a thing, watched the look on their face. And I was waiting for somebody to say something. And finally I just said, what do you see? And somebody said, well, it's an infinity symbol. I said, infinity is endless, correct? You can, there's no beginning, there's no end. It just continues, right? And I said, so I want you to think of your training this way. And let's introduce influences over the course of this path. And as you, as you saw in the flow cycles that are in the book, I depicted various components of your training in this infinity path. And, uh, you know, some people might say, well, why did you even need to do that? Couldn't you just do that in a linear thing? And, just, and I didn't want to do that because I wanted to get people's mindset away from that linear progression. I don't want people to think in terms of linear. And then somebody would, would say something, well, why not just a circle? It's cyclical. Well, because the, in a cycle, there's no high or low point. But in infinity, you could create that. It's almost like a roller coaster. You start working your way up and then you work your way out and you work your way back up again. <clears throat> so climbing into the intensity, departing from the intensity, introducing more intensity and how you flow. Uh, so uh, as, you, as you've learned from the book is there are times when we're gonna be aerobic. Uh, there's gonna be times where we're gonna be highly anaerobic. There are going to be times when we're moderately anaerobic. There are going to be times when we recover from that. Uh, in the case of obstacle course racing, uh, uh, high rocks training, things like this, we introduce elements of strength or challenges. Uh, but the same process exists, flowing in and out. So if you were to train this way uh, on a regular basis, you would never need, like, you know, uh, in triathlon used to be, I would ride the bike till I was sick of it. And then I would run. And I would run till I'm sick of it. And then I'd start swimming. <laughs> right? Segregated, <laughs> completely segregated. Yeah. And, and sometimes, uh, and people hated to do bricks where, you know, ride the bike for a while, then run. Yeah. Uh, swim for a while, then ride the bike, whatever. Um, and that's never been comfortable. But if they were to flow while they were doing that and constantly have all these components in their processes at various intensities, at various durations, 
they'd be much more proficient in the act of putting those three things together. So, so conceptually, I was, I'm sold. I wasn't, I'm not going to say I was, I am sold on the concept of introducing all the elements that will be, you will be challenged with and introducing them into your training on a, on a regular basis. Doesn't have to be exclusively flow. There may be a day where, you know, you're feeling like you need just to get a, a nice, easy recovery day and you do an aerobic thing. Fine. Maybe focusing exclusively on strength components. Fine. But if the principal approach is in a flow pattern, like I've depicted, I think, well, I know, cause I've been training athletes this way. You're going to get much, much more, uh, uh, response from your body. That's great. <laughs> I know I just wore you out, but I apologize. No, don't, don't apologize. I love it. Um, you're just a wealth of knowledge when it comes to this. Yeah. Um, um, so when you set out to write this book five years ago, I think I remember you reading, you thought the title, uh, training the dark side was appropriate. Why? How did that opinion change over time? And what would you have named it had you named it today? Uh, well, I, I'm not terribly sure, uh, but I'm, I, I want to believe that there would be something to do with flow because obviously the, the end result in the book was uh, the culmination of what I've tried to try to teach was that there needs to be this synergistic flowing pattern in your training. So okay. I don't know. I, don't, I didn't have this fallback idea for the name of the book. Um, it's just that I've been talking about the book for so many years that if I wrote something different, they would assume that I just, I scuttled the whole idea of this other book. But it, it, it still plays well into this because Training the Dark Side is giving the just dessert that being anaerobic <laughs> requires. Yeah. You, you need to really develop your anaerobic pathways and you need to do that regardless of, of, of the distance or the intensity that you hope to, to train in. And mind you, realize that I'm fortifying what I've written with the athletes I coach. They are my test bed. So I have athletes that for the past year or so have been doing these workouts unconsciously. I'm writing programs, say, here's what I want you to do. They're following it and they're flowing and they didn't, we never had the discussion about the flow and the, the, the rationale for why they're doing what they're doing. They're just following me blindly and doing it. And, uh, I have, I have athletes that are, that are doing, uh, I just had one of my athletes just finished up a, a, a tremendous trail run that was, um, you know, being in Canada, I should speak in meters. It was probably, uh, um, 3,500, um, I can't speak in, I can't do Canadian. So it's over 10,000 feet on average Yeah, it's in the mountains. Right. And, um, <laughs> for 70 uh for 70 kilometers you know and uh it was just a tremendously difficult event and uh she she'd been doing these flow workouts for the past two years and we've been averaging um between 70 and 80 miles a week okay and never worse for wear never having an issue with injuries uh, never having to shut down because of an ankle or Achilles or calf or hip or back, nothing like that. And uh, her average heart rates have been drastically reduced or lowering the cost of work. Her performances have been good. 
Um, she's got some issues with her GI tract, which has nothing to do with the training. Uh, more so uh, adaptation to altitude. She has a problem with altitude. Uh, she The last two races, she, but by the way, she did a, uh, a 50K mountain race in Colorado uh, two weeks before the 70K race. And uh, she was fine uh, energetically with both of those events. Um, just she was having real serious GI issues when she got up into the altitudes. Sounds like uh, a great athlete. Well, but the point, and mind you, this is a woman that has six kids oh, man. and uh, has a full-time job as an attorney and she's 40, 40 years old and yeah. she's doing great. Um, she'll probably not hear this podcast. So, um, but um, she, she's doing, you know, and she came from a track background. She was actually, she's actually a coach. And I totally turned her around, um, you know, from dealing with uh, issues. She's been to the lab. We did one of my clinics and uh, totally turned her around with the way she runs. Uh, totally got her involved to the concept of using her heart rate with her training, which most track athletes don't. And she's never looked back. And, uh, you know, now we're changing gears. We're looking at, uh, you know, looking at shorter distance events. We're going to look to see if we can increase in speed. Um, but it, I, at the same token, I've got athletes that, that they focus on stadium type races. They're, they're doing Spartan stadium. That's, that's their jam. They like to go short, fast, hard. And th the concepts of the training are still very, very applicable. Just the approaches are a little different. Um, but what's really cool about this that I've found is that the sustainability in training, they're never getting blown out. They're not, they're not ever, we're never getting into this place where we said, oh, you know what, we're going to need to take, we're going to need to take like two, three days off because you're, you're blown or, or injured for that matter. Yeah. Um, so I also spoke at great length uh, of the importance of the, the, the two uh, concerns, efficiency and economy. And so there's, there wasn't just this hocus pocus about flow. As you know, the first 80, 90 pages of the book they're all about the science and, and uh, mechanics of movement, right? And I tried desperately to uh, explain what running should look like. And I believe I even, even apologize that uh, if you were expecting me to teach you how to run by reading this book, that's not going to work. Yeah, exactly. But, <laughs> but I tried to reveal what I believe, um, supported by physics, is the most efficient way to approach your running. And talk about getting pushback. People, people that have been running for all their life don't want to hear that. You know, they don't want to hear uh, someone say that what they've been doing for the past 30 years is incorrect. And you know, there's the function of strength to weight ratio. There's people that are very lean, very sturdy relative to their mass, and very capable of putting up with the disruptions that they throw at themselves. And so they're not even aware that their, their, their capacity to put up with the corruptions that they toss at it are principally why they're surviving. Hmm. Uh, but the question might be, if they were to take the time to change and get into a better pattern, how much better they might perform? And that's always the, the $50,000 question. Right. Yeah, of course. And then some people can deal with change easily. 
uh, and some can't. It's like that old saying, you know, it's sometimes it's really hard to teach an old dog new tricks, especially when they've been doing it for such a long time to have somebody come in and tell them, listen, you're doing it wrong. And meanwhile, you've been doing this for like decades. It, it's really hard to somebody. But there's some other athletes on the flip side that, you know, change is important. You know, change is inevitable. It's going to happen and we should change with the times, especially as an athlete. You know, you need to change. There's going to be other athletes that are just going to be a little superior. And in order to you compete at a high level with them, you need to change. Well, yeah. And I, believe me, you know, I, I, get, uh, I get criticism for my, my staunch opinions often. Um, but believe me when I tell you, I don't, I don't believe that what I'm offering is an opinion. I'm just, I'm just introducing reality. And yeah. I used to make the joke. So, you know, if I, I pick this up and drop it, it's going to fall every single time. That's gravity. That's irrefutable. Right. And so when you think in terms of the way you're projecting a, a body through space, locomotion, and then the things that are restraining you. You have ground beneath you, you have gravity above you, and you have uh, all these various resistances that you're contending with, uh, inertia, how you're pushing your body through space. And when you overstride, when you project your foot ahead of your body, you're imposing a braking force that has to be uh, overcome. If you overstride, the likelihood of Excess vertical oscillation is very, very much in play. So the higher you go up, the harder you fall. The faster you push yourself into space, the more dynamically you're going to come to the ground. And so you can actually easily throw three to five times your body weight into the earth and do it with corruption. So landing on your calcaneus is with the heli uh, protrusion of your foot. There's really nothing there to protect you. A little bit of a heel pad. You might want to depend on a shoe that has uh, a great uh, depth of uh, cushion. But by landing on your heel, as I exposed in the book, bypasses all the information highway that is designed to communicate with your central nervous system to tell you how to respond to that ground force reaction. And... I have a question regarding that. <laughs> All right, good. In just a second. Yeah. So let me interrupt you here for one sec. Sure. Uh, so you're famous for saying you can't win if you run like shit. Yeah. And in the beginning of the book, you talk about the fact that there are many ways to run, but only one way to run correctly. For someone like me who thinks I run pretty well, uh, where do I even start to make the changes? Can you describe how to run the right way? Woo. Well, um, first of all, when people come to see me for gait correction, and the, principally this is what I do. I mean, I obviously do VO2 testing, but um, the majority of the people that come to see me, they are generally troubled with injuries. They've been hurting themselves over and over and over and over again. But they're, res they're resistant to quit. They don't want to stop running. Many of them come to me and the doctor told them, <clears throat> maybe you should ride an elliptical. Maybe you should just ride a bike. You should stop running because of the damage they're doing to their body. Taking that same person that have been damaging themselves, 
in a matter of five minutes, show them how to run, get them to running better and pain free, <coughs> excuse me, completely freaked out because all of a sudden they're moving along and it doesn't hurt anymore. You can hear it when they're running on the treadmill, the audibility of a collision versus non-collision. When they're landing well, it doesn't sound like a truck falling from the sky. Yeah. Right? So what I try to impart to people when I, when I first go through this process with them <clears throat> is I discuss the fact that there is one goal, principal goal, is to find stability. <clears throat> You need to be stable. When you toss yourself up in the air and land once again, the first concern is to find stability. <clears throat> so your foot needs to land closer to your body. The further away from your body, the more unstable you are. If you were to stand up right now and lift one leg, you're able to balance because your posted leg is beneath you. If you were to stick your foot uh, 10 inches ahead of your body and lift your trailing leg, it's not going to work. You're going to fall over. Yeah. So when we're running, this is exactly what we're doing every step we take if we're overstriding. But because we have momentum, we're rolling over that unstable pillar every step we take. And so there's a moment during that collision where you either take it or with time chronically, it starts to cause a problem for you. Okay, so stability is the number one thing to concern yourself with. And that means your foot needs to make ground contact as close to your body as possible. Of course. It turns out, <clears throat> and I bang the drum quite heavily in, in the book and day to day, about the importance of finding a stride frequency of about 180 strides per minute. Not because I just read it, but because it just turns out from a physics perspective, that it shortens the gait cycle well enough to cause your foot to land closer to your body. When people, and I, I coach athletes all over the world and they send me analytics so I can see what they've been doing. When I get a report from someone that, I had a conversation with a client I'm, to, I'm coaching right now that lives in Qatar, okay? I'm never gonna meet this guy, I'm not going to Qatar, right? But I'm looking at the analytics and I'm saying, Abdullah, you are overstriding. And this is going to be a problem. It's going to be a problem with your performance. It's going to be a problem with your uh, injury prevention. Hmm. He's like, how do you, I'm looking at the stride frequency. The, the slower the stride frequency, the longer it's taking to get through the gait cycle. And that's because you're reaching further ahead of your body. <clears throat> so landing at 180 strides per minute just brings your foot closer. Notice I have not said yet that you need to land on your forefoot. It just so happens that the mechanoreceptors in the front of your feet are that information highway, that afferent feedback that your brain requires to make decisions about contractile uh, sequences. What muscles to contract, what muscles to relax, where to stiffen, where to relax, relative to the surface that you're landing on. Now, that goes into the whole concept of the type of shoe you wear, right? When you start to wear a shoe that's got a big, heavy sole, you're dampening that information. That starts to mess with the feedback you require to make the correct decisions. Okay. When you land on a heavily padded sole, you're just hoping that the sole will dampen the, the impact forces well enough 
to, to forgive the mistakes you're making when you're moving. It's just not a good path. So when I start speaking about how to run, that was your question, how to begin to run properly, I want them to start to find proper ground contact first. I don't care, even if it's not about the frequency. If you can land on the appropriate part of your foot, closer to your body, that's the first step. <clears throat> find stability. Okay. If you're overstriding, you can't find stability. If you land on the outside edge of your foot first, you're not gonna find stability. If you pronate, supinate excessively, that's generally due to the fact that you're unstable underground force. So uh, that's generally where I take them. And can I tell you that, that it's been a long time now. I can't even tell you how many people that I've put through this process, either on the road, uh, in a hotel. You know, I, I, historically we've gone, in, in all the states in the country that we've gone to, we found that the residents in had two treadmills, one elliptical, one weight bench, a physio ball in this little space. <laughs> That's all I needed. If I can get a treadmill and still have another treadmill for the other guests, <laughs> I will take 25 people onto that treadmill, video the way they're moving, show them what they're doing wrong, show them how to make the corrections, and do a VO2 test. And then the following day, we'll go outside and put it to work. And I've been doing that for years now. I mean, literally for the last 10 years, I've, been, I've done this. And I can generally get 90% of the people that I meet running well in that first day. In that first day. Now, what happens after they leave is on them. I, yeah, you know, I, there's exactly. only so much I can do. Right. That's right. I mean, for me, it took me a long time, but um, I would still, like, I would love to have somebody look at my, my running form, yeah. my technique is making and letting me know whether, if I'm doing something wrong or if I'm doing something right. Uh, so that way I can continue uh, improving. But listen, I would come down and see you as soon as possible if I can do that. <laughs> yeah, well, now. you know, honestly, we, we, uh, I do the video analysis with athletes. <clears throat> I, have, I have one scheduled later today. Um, these are people I don't know. I, you know I, I'll get the videos they send me, and I'll, I'll, I'll spin through the videos real quickly to see what they're doing. Uh, then I put it in my analysis software to discern I slow things down, make some call outs, show them what I'm seeing and what they need, need to correct, send it back to them. We get on the phone, we start talking about the corrections. Yeah. Now, aside from understanding the way things are supposed to look, I can teach anybody within 10 minutes to know what to look for. Right. The question is, how do you get into somebody else's head and help them understand perceptively how to achieve that end? That's the tricky part. Yeah. That is really the tricky part because I'm telling you, I've got people that have come to me for years where they've been drinking the Kool-Aid I refer to it as. So listening to my podcast, uh, you know, maybe heard from friends or whatever, the things that I discuss with people and, or even maybe even attended a clinic and they'll say, you know what, I've got the nine things. I've got those nine things worked out. I just can't seem to, you know, it's a lot to think about when I'm, you know, when I'm trying to do, I said, nine things, my God, nine things. There's only one thing. There's only one thing I need you to worry about. And that just blows them. What do you mean? There's only one thing. Yeah. Where you put your foot. Exactly. Worry about that. Let's worry just about that. I know. And, and, and you know, all of a sudden they have this epiphany that, and the other consideration is 
the perception of what you do. So let's say you read my book and you get it. You, okay, this all makes sense to me. This is what I'm going to try to do. Maybe you think you're doing that and then you get injured. Now you lose faith. Yeah. Oh, you know, I tried that. That's bullshit. I got hurt when I did that. Right. Yeah. Well, no, you weren't doing that. What you were doing is you're doing what you thought was that you were doing something entirely different. You just didn't realize it. And so you may spend months, years thinking you're trying to correct what you are trying to correct, but you're making mistakes that you're not even aware of. It takes someone that's got a trained eye to see what it is that you're doing and better get into your head so you realize what it is you were doing wrong. And one of the things that I've done that I've found to be very effective is I will post my iPad in front of them with a camera that's looking at them from the side. So as they're running forward, they're getting a, 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 a real-time snapshot of what it looks like when they're running from the side. Hmm. So they can actually see, well, I know I'm not supposed to overstride. By God, I'm overstriding. I know I'm not supposed to be landing on my heel. Well, look at that. I'm, in fact, landing on my heel. So they're getting real-time feedback, audible, not just uh, um, uh, conceptually, but visually they're seeing the mistakes they're making. I have athletes I work with when I'm coaching them. I bring them into the lab, and I've done this with VJ a million times. I'll set the iPad up in front of him and let him go. He knows what he needs to fix. He knows what he needs to correct. He just doesn't know whether he's doing it or not. But the, the visual information on the fly really was very powerful for most of the people I work with. Hmm. That's very interesting. Yeah. Um, what is cadence? Why is it so important? And what is the ideal cadence? Well, cadence refers to the frequency in which time you hit the ground. And it could be measured in steps per minute, strides per minute. And people like to uh, look at those as two different animals. Um, stride might be twice, you know, 180 strides per minute, for example where step rate might be half that, might be 90, because you're only counting one foot at a time. Uh, be that as it may, as I just suggested to you, and there's scientific evidence, I mean, people that have done research studies on this, that have looked at stride frequency and look at the rate of injuries of athletes. They're not looking at, it's been few and far between where people actually looked at performance. But the biggest concern, because most runners get injured, literally over 75, 80% of recreational runners will face an injury related to the way they move. So the research was uh, granted in respect to <clears throat> the potential to abate injury through running. So they looked at stride frequencies and they looked at uh, the potential to reduce injuries relative to stride. So a typical overstrider runs at a cadence of about 160 to 164 steps per minute, strides per minute. Yes. And so they found that by increasing the frequency by 10%, they were able to reduce the injuries at the ankle, knee, and hip by 20%. They further found by, excuse me, 5% reduced by 20%. 10% reduced by a full 32%. 32% reduction in injury if you increase the stride frequency by 10%. As it turns out, that puts you very, very close to 180 strides per minute. And so 
there are, is empirical information that shows that by bringing your cadence to 180, you can reduce injury by a significant margin. 32% reduction in injury is massive. So think of it in another way. Most runners have a limitation in the volume that they can support. And most athletes that have been working as a runner for a long, <coughs> a long time, <coughs> excuse me, they know what their limitations are. You yeah. speak in kilometers, maybe you find that when you get to 50 kilometers a week, something starts to bother you. 60, 70. <clears throat> Everybody's different. Everybody's got a different break point. It's true. But it's a function of the insult you created and how frequently you created it. And so the more you run, you get into this place where you finally get to a place where you start to break down. Everybody has a break point. And most athletes know what it is. So let's say, say hypothetically, and for the sake of the Canadian market, I'm going to speak in kilometers because this is easier to do right now. Yeah. Let's just say that you break at 40 kilometers a week. Okay. That's historically what happens. And historically, when you start to break down at 40 kilometers a week, what do you do? You back off. You, you let your body recover. You take maybe a week off. You know, you start doing some, you know, self-treatment modalities. Maybe you go to a physical therapist if it's bad enough. And then you start all over again. And you get to that break point again and you fail again. I have runners that we've adjusted the way they move <clears throat> and they double their volume. On average, double their volume. I have people that gone three times their volume. I have people that don't even know what their new break point is because fatigue is more of an issue now. They're just tired. They've been running so much, uh, but mechanically they're sound. They're not, they're not breaking down because they've eliminated or minimized the corruptions in the way they move. Hmm. And this is due in great part to the fact that A, they reduced the injuries through increasing stride frequency. And so someone might ask, since you said what is optimal, like what stride frequency or cadence is optimal, if 180 is good, why wouldn't 190 be better? Quicker cadence, right? Because okay. obviously at 190, you're going to be much closer to your, your body when you land. But then it's the cost of work. Because to turn your legs over that quickly is going to develop more expense. Right? And so now you're pushing into your lactate and maybe you fail because you're not trained to live in that toxic environment. And you start to shut down or potentially uh, over overuse your body and, and be, you know, you're tired more, more quickly and hmm. such and such. So it just turns out that, it, you know, and it, I'm telling you, I've messed with this for so long, it's not even funny. And I was the devil's advocate in the early days, really trying to be careful what I say. I used to write an article for a magazine about, you know, running mechanics and things like this. And I was very, very careful and very reticent to hang my hat exclusively on what I'm telling people these days. Because over time, and, and, you know, it's like you'll get a, a, a person that's opinionated about their own experiences. Oh, no, I've been running at 170. That's perfect for me, right? They want to argue that I'm wrong about this. They don't, they don't live the life that I live. They don't, they don't experience the uh, exposure daily to, I mean, a countless athletes where we've corrected the way they moved. And the chief correction was, 
getting them off their heels, getting them on their forefoot, injuries go away. And the thing that's still kind of um, uh, unsaid in the scientific community is performance enhancements. Because when you land correctly, your potential for force production is greater. If you want to hit a ball, a tennis ball faster, you have to hit the tennis ball harder, right? So the beauty of the running mechanics is because we're getting this force production from gravity. It's not us working harder if you do it right. You're garnering the, uh, the energy that is pro provided you through gravitational force, which is going to extend your stride. You're going to open your stride up and you're going to cover more ground for every step. And if your step is fixed at 180 strides per minute, we know you're not working harder. Harder would be 190 strides per minute. You know what I mean? So yeah. we're seeing people, uh, well, you know, I use this example, and I, you know, VJ was with me on, on your last podcast. Uh, he, would, he would share with you that he can run a 430 mile at 180 strides per minute. There are some people that can't get to that speed at 180 strides per minute because their mechanics fall apart. But you can train yourself to improve your force production, gather force production from gravity, and get further distance from each step you take at no more expense. I mean, literally paying wholesale as opposed to paying retail. Wow. There's a topic well, not a, there's a topic. A topic I have listened to you discuss on your own podcast uh, with various other athletes, uh, how much shoes impact running. What is the right shoe to wear? Mm. You know, I did a podcast the other day and this conversation came up. And uh, unfortunately for the host, he didn't really think through who he was talking to, <laughs> you know, because he was trying to, he was trying to get me to promote a shoe that he is uh, involved with. Okay. And, you know, he wanted me to talk about that shoe. And I'm like, you know, look, dude, um, <laughs> I don't like that shoe. <laughs> and here's why, you know, and, and so you, you shouldn't ask, right? I mean, you don't want to get a straight answer from me. Don't ask it. Right. Um, you know, it's like, you know, does this, does this skirt make me look fat? <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like, don't ask yeah. that question. Right. But, um, yeah. so, you know, and you, again, once again, I'm always telling everybody what the book says, but in the book, I talk about shoe selection and, and I'm not ever probably likely to get a shoe sponsor, uh, to support me <laughs> because the shoe industry is just, um, infamous for, being in the business of selling shoes uh, despite the benefit or flaw in design. So they're more interested in looking at a marketing position than they are looking at a, a solution to a problem. And it started uh, early on, Bill Bowerman, who is the founder of Nike, being a coach, it occurred to him well, first of all, it occurred to him that, you know what, we're going to put an interesting running surface on the shoe. So putting some rubber on his wife's uh, waffle iron, he created the first waffle sole 
under a running shoe, more traction, rubber, as opposed to leather, things like this. Yeah. And uh, then, you know, he was on a rant and he decided, wow, if we stride out further, we can cover more ground. But to stride out further, he identified that you would land on your heel if you do it. So he started developing a shoe with a pronounced heel. Now I've got a target to land on that's cushioned, right? Later, much later in his career, he identified that this was probably not the smartest thing to do. Uh, Dr. Daniel Lieberman, who is uh, uh, an exercise, excuse me, he's an anthropologist at the uh, Harvard University, um, did a ton of research on ground, ground impact forces and the difference between being, being barefoot versus uh, a heavy-soled shoe. And they, you know, it's, you could Google this, you'll find it. <clears throat> he showed that ground reaction um, barefoot was in a much greater control than it would be had you landed on that sole. So in other words, the body took more impact landing on the sole. And he said himself, and in, in, I'm, I'm quoting what I've read off the internet that in his literature, that to land on your heel is analogous to beating yourself in the foot with a hammer every step you take. Yeah. All right. So we just identified that having a cushioned sole is not a great idea. I pointed out earlier that if you don't land on your forefoot, you bypass a lot of really important mechanisms in which to uh, teach your body how to uh, mitigate ground uh, force. We talked about the mechanoreceptors. I talked about the windlass mechanism in the book, the way the importance of getting flexion off the great toe and the sequence of events that occur up the kinetic chain when you bypass landing on the front of your foot. <clears throat> so we need a shoe that promotes a natural landing. Yeah. And we need a shoe that's not going to get in the way of the information that's coming from the ground. We need a shoe that's going to protect our foot. So there's this happy medium. I wear a shoe. I'm not even going to tell you what brand it is because I don't want to promote it. That has uh, not very much sole. Um, the soles relatively uh, stiff <clears throat> uh, to protect a foot. It has a broad toe box. The broad toe box allows my toes to splay. Your toes want to do this. They don't want to do this. And I've done, if you go to my YouTube channel, you'll see some videos that we did, shoe reviews. Well, BJ and I did some That's shoe right. reviews. Yeah, that was interesting. And, and so the point I made was a lot of these shoes are designed like this. So the toe box comes to a point in the middle. And I said, I don't know about you, but my big toe is on the outside. It's not in the middle, <laughs> right? So yeah. this doesn't make any sense. And crowding these toes together really inhibits natural function. And if you start to run a long ways, you're going to start develop inflammation in between these toes. And so they need some freedom to move and display and to function. Yeah. Try to imagine if you were to put duct tape around your fingers, around your hand, yep. and leave it that way for a week. Then take the duct tape off and try to write your name. 
you're going to find that you're going to move, you're going to lose some of the functionality of your fingers because you've inhibited that natural functionality. Yeah. So I don't want a shoe that gets in the way. I don't want a shoe that's going to try to control my movement. I don't want it to try to cushion my contact with the ground. I just want it to protect me from, from the surfaces I'm running on. And I don't need a mattress to do that. Yeah. So the further off the ground, the stack height they talk about, the more uh, unstable you're going to be laterally. Fore and aft, you're just going to be completely unstable. And you're going to dampen uh, information. So yeah. when somebody shows me a shoe, I say, yep, I like that one for you. Nope, I don't like that one for you. I don't even look at the brand. I can, all I care, care about is whether the shoe is going to do what it needs to do. No, exactly. Um, a lot of runners and OCR athletes focus on the bigger muscles in the body. We often think that the legs and the glutes are uh, as being the most crucial uh, for running success. According to your book, it is your feet that are most important. Mobility and stability in your feet. Can you tell us why this is so important? Well, so um, there's, there's, it's not about the foot is like most important, but it's the first thing that makes contact with the ground. That's right. So, uh, by the way, I've, I've had, I had a client, I just, I've used this analogy many times. Um, I have a client that I was uh, training to run a marathon. Uh, she lived in Sydney, Australia. We communicate through internet uh, and she would send me you know, I'm looking at uh, the hybrid view. I could see where she is. I could see what the elevation was. I could see the terrain. I could see what her pace looked like. I could see all the de details about her movement patterns. And she was complaining to me that she was having all sorts of problems before we met, injuries, where she was seeing a physio physiotherapist three times a week or a chiropractor often and habitually because when she runs, she hurts. She got so frustrated with it that she finally got on a plane and flew out to see me. First thing I did was I said, uh, what kind of exercises are, is your physio giving you to correct the problems you're having? She got on the ground and she started doing the, the uh, obligatory exercises that physios give to clients when they're having a problem with their running. Clamshells. They put they put the uh, TheraBand between the knees and then they you know, abduct, or, and abduct the legs to try to develop um, glute integrity, trying to get the glutes firing, right? And so, or very, very chronically, what I'll see is they'll do a video analysis and they'll say, oh, look, look, your hips are dropping. Your glutes aren't firing. Well, your glutes are not suspended in space, right? You're, you're, or talk about your core. Your core is breaking down. Your core and your glutes and all these things in the middle, they're not suspended in space. They're connected to your legs. And your leg is going to be contacting the ground. And gravity is going to be pushing down on all of you. So what's more important, to battle gravity or to make friends with the earth? Uh, and so the integrity and the synergistic approach of ground contact leads to stability and integration of the core. And if you get good hip extension, you start to fire the glutes. And so you start to get a, a, a synergistic approach to creating stability and, uh, you know, dare I say, core integration. We're, you know, I don't want to say develop your core strength. 
your, the, I've had people ask me this question in my podcast, and I know they come away frustrated when I say it because they don't see what I'm saying. I've had people say, what's the best core exercise for running? I said, land properly. Yep. I had this a conversation with a soccer player I'm training right now uh, a few days ago because she has a trainer, you know, aside from me being the mechanic, she has a trainer that um, has been working her core. And he's telling her how important she, it is to get her core firing or whatever. I'm like, I want you to hop up and down on one leg and grab your, your abdominal muscles. Are they contracting? She goes, yes. I said, now I want you to hop up and down and cause your abdominal muscles not to contract. Try that. Won't work. Hmm. When you hop on the ground, you are going to engage your abdominal muscles, right? And when you do it dynamically, the more force you create, the more stable you are, the more integration you're going to have with your entire system. But it comes from the ground first. So I've seen people work their glutes, work their glutes, got the, they got, uh, you know, their, their butts like a nine-year-old boy from doing all these exercises. And they still have problems with injuries. They're still breaking down left and right. They're falling apart. And, and the girl, again, from, from Sydney, Australia, yeah. In 10 minutes, I had her running pain-free. Oh, that's great. We didn't encourage more glute exercises. All we did was change the way she was moving, and all of a sudden, she was fine. And she was so pissed that she had been spending all this time and money seeing this physical. So, so you spend five minutes working on, your, on your, uh, your glutes and trying to stabilize your abductors and your adductors and all this system in the middle of your body. And then you go out and run for an hour and you, the corruption in the way you're running destroys everything you, you've done to, to try to balance out those weaknesses. It, it, it's just moronic to me that you don't approach first the way you're moving. You talk a lot about uh, VO2 max. Uh, yeah. What is this and why is it so important? Okay, VO2 max uh, refers to the maximum volume of oxygen your body can process relative to your mass in kilos of body weight per minute. Okay. I'll say it again. The maximum volume of oxygen your body can process relative to your mass in kilos of body weight per minute. So when you look at a VO2 score, you know, they toss these numbers around a lot. So like a, a 60 refers to uh, uh, 60 milliliters of oxygen process per kilo of body weight per minute. So this is referring to each kilo of body weight. So if you want to look at the actual uh, milliliters of oxygen your body processes, you would, you would have to look at that multiplied times your weight. Um, sure. So the more oxygen you can deliver to the working body, the more potential there is for performance because oxygen, liberates, oxygen liberates energy, right? So yeah. it, be, it virtually is the gold standard for uh, measuring fitness. And then, so... Aside from looking at the, the potential to recognize your fitness, it also will recognize this uh, metabolic turn point where you've gone away from burning fat to now burning exclusively sugar. And I, I used to say this for years, I should almost uh, uh, amend it because potentially there's also lactate being used when you, when you start to use a lot of carbohydrate. When you burn carbohydrate, you produce lactate. So lactate can either be the enemy or it could be your friend. It depends how you treat it. 
uh, but it's being produced when you're into your carbohydrate stores and you're into your carbohydrate stores when you start to push over your threshold. So when we know where this metabolic turn point is, we can start to look at how to approach training. And uh, so for me, I like to refer to it as my crystal ball. If you came to see me tomorrow and I don't know you, I could put you up on my, my cart and do a VO2 test on you. And I will have a very strong feeling about what you've done in the past and what things we need to do in the future based on what you're trying to accomplish. Oh, that's great. Another one, heart rate. Um, what is the importance of heart rate when it comes to training? Well, heart rate um, is, is the, the metric that's used to measure where you are metabolically. Okay, so when you do a VO2 max test, you're looking at the increase in heart rate relative to the consequence of energy utilization. Okay, at 160 beats per minute, now I'm burning exclusively sugar. So when you know this, when you're training using heart rate, it, you have a chance to decide what it is you're trying to accomplish that day. So um, if I want to improve your aerobic potential, I'm going to have you spend more time aerobically. Now, but again, going back to my flow cycles, that doesn't mean we're not going to do the other things. because your fitness lives in higher intensity. Your fatness lives in lower intensity. So if you want to burn fat, you're going to be at a lower intensity, but you need to be there for a longer time. If you want to get fit, you got to be at the higher intensity. So you want to be less fat and you want to be more fit. You need to do both, right? Yeah. Most of us, whether we are OCR or trail uh, athletes, are running in mountains. Can you talk to us about the importance of terrain running downhill running and cadence? It's a tough question. It's a really tough question. And I, I've, I've battled with this question often. And um, I try not to develop an opinion where I'm not confident in, the, in my conclusion. So okay. what I've been doing, and again, referring to my clinics, and I've been doing the clinics for, as I suggested, many years now, I will historically, when we go we go out on trails, I will find a steep hill. <clears throat> and I will ask my group to run up the hill and run down the hill. I will be at the base of the hill. And I'm watching them. And I will ask them, I said, just run up to the top of the hill, come back down as quickly as you can, like you normally might. Now I'm going to set you to a stride frequency. I'm going to I have an audible metronome with a speaker loud enough so they can hear me as they go up and down the hill. So try to adhere to 180 strides per minute, up and down. And then I'll ask them to increase their frequency. So we've got three different attempts. And then I'll simply ask them, what was more efficient for you? What did you feel was more sustainable? What was less expensive? And it's interesting because I'll get a lot of people that tell me that going uphill at a controlled frequency, at this 180 I asked them to be at, was quicker, more sustainable. And then on the downhill, everything goes out the window. Because now you've got inhibition because you want to impose braking force. If you go too fast, you, 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 intuitively, you're trying to keep yourself from harm. So you start throwing the brakes on, right? Um, then it's a function of how stable you are, right? So developing this uh this integrity in your ground context clearly important 
And if you don't have the ability to toss yourself with gravity now at your back, pushing you into the ground on one leg, you break down. So you've been in OCR, you know, lots of ankle injuries, turning ankles, busting up their knees, shattering their hips, all kinds. It's usually because they just don't have integration. They don't have good integrity uh, up the kinetic chain. So I, you know, with my OCR athletes, I train them uh, very specifically on one leg at a time uh, when we're doing hill work. But um, I posed the same question you asked me to um, a gentleman by the name of Scott Jarek. I don't know if you know who he is. Scott Jarek is uh, one of the most renowned trail runners, ultra trail runners in the United States. He was, so he's getting a little older now. And I did an interview with him years ago and I asked him the same question. How should you approach a downhill? He said, look at the, look at nature. Look at the trees on the side of the mountain when you're running down. They're perpendicular. They don't fall forward. They don't fall back. They're perpendicular. He goes, you should try to maintain a perpendicular stance on the way down because you have more control of your posture and your, and your, your ground contact that way. So ideally, you want to be perpendicular on the way down. You want to minimize the amount of breaking force because that's disruption in the joints. Okay. Um, and then, of course, you need to train yourself to be strong enough to contend with the way you throw yourself down the hill. Um, Interesting. I spoke, I spoke a hunter earlier. Um, I would do workouts with him on a downhill, and he would cover, um, he would cover easily two, three meters per stride on a downhill. But every time he landed, his foot was beneath him, uh, because he had that kind of integrity and that strength in his in his legs to put up with that ground contact like that. Most people don't have that and they fear that, that, that uh, ground force reaction. So they turn the legs over faster. And you know, the downside there is if, if you turn your legs over too qu quick, you could lose control That's and right. end up uh, face All down. Right. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of talk about lactic acid and how important it is to get rid of it from your system quickly as possible because it can be toxic or it is toxic to the point that I've been sold on supplements that are apparently that apparently take care of this for me. Also, this is uh, where the muscle pain comes uh, after intense exercises. In your book, you talk about lactic paradox. Can you explain? Well, first of all, uh, there is no such thing as acid. There's no lactic acid. There's lactate. So lactate. You, you're, when you burn carbohydrate, you produce lactate. The more carbohydrate you burn, or the greater rate at which you burn it, the more lactate you produce. Now, lactate, they've yet to determine specifically what the culprit for um, um, dysfunction in your movement patterns are. I don't want to say pain. It, it can get painful. I mean, if you don't, if you don't abate whatever it is you're doing, when that, that lactate, lactate becomes in, uh, untenable, it's painful. But lactate does not cause damage. Um, it's a toxic environment in the muscle if it's um, brought on too quickly and you're not able to dispel it. It has nothing to, to do with the soreness the following day. Uh, the soreness you experience the following day has to do with damage. You, you, you have microtrauma in the muscles from the work you did. Uh, there's tearing. Uh, it's natural. Uh, that's you know just part of the growth pattern of development but uh, it has zero to do with lactate. Lactate 
uh, if you stop doing whatever it is that you're doing, within five to 10 minutes, that lactate in those muscles is gone. It's, it's gone, you've dispelled it. It's you're, right. you know, through blood flow, whatever. Um, so the, the, the paradox is that for so long, as you kind of voiced yourself, people have been misinformed about what lactate is, is and uh, uh, they, they refer to it as the damage that's created in the muscle post-exercise. Um, and there's nothing further than the truth. The body tries to produce lactate almost as a supplemental energy source. Uh, so when you're starting to, to remove carbohydrate from your body, which is at a very limited supply, intuitively your body starts to create a supplemental source of energy. And lactate can be used as a supplemental source. It just depends on how you process it. And if it comes on too quickly, then what you really want to do is rid it from the muscles as quickly as possible. Okay. This is what I did with uh, the CrossFitters. Because, you know, the CrossFitters have a high-intensity workout for about 40 minutes very little break, and they need to keep that lactate coming out of the muscle as quickly as they possibly can. They're not concerned about supplemental energy. They're not looking at, you know, what can I do to supplement the carbohydrate I blew out because they're not going to lose their energy in 40 minutes. Okay. So <clears throat> the paradox has to do with um, better understanding what lactate is for, where it comes from, how to dispel it, when to dispel it, how to deal with it. And, hmm. and I think that there's not been enough uh, information uh, shared correctly about what that's, I mean, principally, that's what the book is about. Yeah. No, and no, I refer I to that as the dark side. Yeah. What happens when you get into your lactate. Of course. And so you have also, dis you have discovered or really created a rev revolutionary training method using what uh, you call uh, flow cycles rather than periodization or linear periodization. In your training, you mix time trials, aerobic effort, cadence, and aerobic threshold, terrain, VO2 max, VO2 max, hill, and recovery. You have icons for each. That's a lot to cover. How do you fit all that into a training cycle? And does a training change depending on how close you are to the race or to yeah, a race? Of course. Well, first of all, I, I don't want to suggest that we're not doing periodization. I'm just suggesting we're not doing traditional periodization. <clears throat> periodization merely suggests that we're organizing work over time. And traditionally, in the early days, there was what they call linear periodization, which I kind of referred to earlier, where there's a block of aerobic conditioning, and then we start to work into more um, different styles of training till we reach a, a peak a competition. And this has commonly been done in, for preparation in the Olympics and such. Um, and the, one of the godfathers of that I discussed in the book was Tudor Bumpa, who, okay. who, by the way, is living up your way. I think he lives in Quebec now, you know, or Toronto. Oh, right. <laughs> he's retired now, but uh, he, uh, he's from Romania. And he was, uh, he was principally responsible for the... Uh, success that the that the ussr experienced in the olympics short of the doping that they're that they're caught doing but um how they organize work over time was very very interesting and then you know someone came along and said well you know that that's ineffective because you know we know metabolically that when you get away from aerobic conditioning start going to anaerobic conditioning you start to lose the benefits of all the work you did early i said that earlier as well 
So they started looking at nonlinear periodization. <coughs> nonlinear periodization suggests that you're going to integrate these components all the time. But still, that's more of a linear process that they were adhering to. But I like where it was going. It's like we're learning with time, you know? We, we weren't ready to learn it yet. Now we learn something new. And now uh, what I've done is I've, I've taken it a step further where uh, I'm integrating all of the components of training. And the, the, the novel thing that I did was, and I did it in my first book, is I introduced icons to depict the various things that you do in your training. We'll call it the, uh, the necessary ingredients of your process. Okay. And so I created little icons just to easily identify what it is you're hoping to do and where to do it and how much time spent doing it. And um, so like reading a, a sheet of music, when you're savvy, when you understand what these icons mean, you could look at the workout and very quickly understand what it is you're trying to do and when. And so I just made it from ease of function is really all it is. Is there anything else from the book uh, that you think is important that we haven't covered, that we haven't talked about? Um, well, I think that the, the take home that I, I tried to create was uh, to get people to think beyond what is commonly seen, you know, think outside the box a little bit. And that's what I did. And, and I, it, it's funny because, you know, I'll, I'll be, I'll be honest with you, writing a book, and I promise you, anybody that writes anything about any topic, they research, and they gather a lot of their information from people that had wrote information about that topic before them. And a lot of times they steal their information. And it's not really stealing, we learn from each other. And so, it wouldn't be uncommon for me to look at what others have said and maybe borrow from what they said. And where the science is concerned, you lend pretty heavily on what the scientific community has said in the past. But it occurred to me, and when I wrote this program for the Dark, uh, dark Horse, it was called uh, Training the Dark, the Dark Horse, I guess it was called, Dark Horse 2. Okay. Um, it occurred to me, so why would I bother looking at what others have said. When I found that a lot of what I've read is shallow. <clears throat> Do you know what Carvonin's method of heart rate reserve is? Have you heard that term before? Can you say that again? Carvonin's method of heart rate reserve. No. Dr. Carvonin, an exercise scientist, came along one day and tried to develop a um, a predictive measure for heart rate in training. What has historically been used is to subtract your age uh, from 220 to determine what your maximum heart rate is, and then oh, do wow. percentages off of that to come up with zones. Well, Carvonin said, well, you know, that's cool, but in order to find our threshold, we need to introduce our resting heart rate. So he did an equation where you did the math and you included your resting heart rate to arrive at a, a cleaner number. He did that research on six people. Every governing body in training today teaches people to use Carvonin's method of heart rate reserve. Oh, wow. Six people. So 
knowing this, and by the way, the guys that did the 220 minus your age thing, yeah, they they came back and said that that was a, that they never intended it to be a, a, a standard for exercise um, training. They, they said it has nothing to do with that, right? And they laugh at it, but it was picked up by Polar. Polar needed some numbers to throw out when they were starting to sell heart rate monitors to, to humans. So they grabbed the numbers and ever since then, <coughs> it's been gospel. So what I decided to do is I grabbed my printer in a ream of paper and I started downloading exercise tests that I've done on athletes. I have thousands. And so what I did is I narrowed it down to athletes over 25 years old, uh, under 55 years old, apparently healthy, female and male. Didn't even look at what exercise uh, modalities they were into. And I started doing the math. I looked at their maximum heart rates in the VO2 test. <clears throat> I looked at um, their thresholds. And I started putting all this information together by gender. And then I started to come up with a conclusion. And the conclusions I came up with, I used those equations in the book. So given that I've, I've done a data collection and research and collective analysis on well over 100 athletes, I'm about 90% more effective than everything that's been written so far. Why the hell would I go to the internet to look for information when I have the information here, right? That's true. So that's how I concluded my business. I didn't, I didn't just say, well, you know, this is what I think. I just pulled up the data and did it. And you know what? In this, the, incidentally, it's, it's kind of off point, but to take it even a step further, I did a, when I did this, uh, this training program for, for the CrossFitters, I brought some of the best CrossFitters in the world to my lab. We did a big video photo shoot and I tested them on each of the devices that they train on, as opposed to just putting everybody on a treadmill and doing a VO2 max and arriving at a conclusion based on that. Well, what happens when you're on a rowing machine as opposed to that treadmill? Changes things. What if you're on a bike, a bike erg as opposed to the treadmill or on a skier? So I tested them on each of those devices and you know, drew a conclusion based on the responses we're getting and wrote the equations based on those, that information. I don't think anybody's ever done that before. I'm pretty sure nobody's done that before. So, oh, wow. you know, so that's, you know, that's kind of how I roll. I, I just, I came to this place where I'm not, I, I don't want to use, said author earlier. I was very impressed by that. I, I don't look at myself as an author. I'm just revealing information and I, you know, God help me. I've got an editor that cleaned it up for me. Yes, um, and but valuable information, information that I'm going to use for myself. And I know that a lot of people watching, whether you're an OCR athlete, a, a runner, trail runner, road runner, <laughs> soccer player, for example, this information is very valuable. You're just not going to find it anywhere. So get that book or reach out. Yeah, it'll reach out to you. So if people are looking to find out more about you, DS Human Performance, or your book, Training the Dark Side, where should they go? Well, I would love it if people just came to the website and uh, purchased the downloads. I, I provide the, uh, the book in, in a, uh, e a PDF or a uh, ebook format. Um, and it's also available 
on Amazon in paperback. Um, uh, obviously, if they, they purchase from me, it, it's better for me. But if they purchase from Amazon, it's not terrible for me either. But um, then there's other information there as well if they want to find out about a clinic. We have a clinic coming up in October that still has room. I expect it will sell it out. We always do. Um, but I typically will put on clinics uh, here in California about uh, three to four times a year. I do, I do one in, uh, I typically do one towards the end of the year. So October would probably be the last one for the year here. And then we'll do another one in January. We'll probably do another one in the summer and generally one in the fall. So about four a year I do here. I've not, I'm not traveling much anymore. I'm going, I have to do a clinic in, in Maryland in two weeks that, that, That's uh, close. yeah, so I'm, I'm doing that. Um, and I should have done it in March, but coronavirus kept us from traveling. Yeah. Um, but I've kind of resigned myself to keep the clinics here. I see people, uh, privately that will come to the lab, you know, to spend some quality time with me. Um, and of course we do the virtual coaching as well. Um, or virtual gait analysis. You know what I've been doing lately that's kind of entertaining is, uh, and I was forced to do it through the, uh, the coronavirus again, we get education from these viruses. I've been doing FaceTime with people where they're getting on their treadmill and I'm watching them on their treadmill. And we do, we do like an hour session where I, I put works. them through whatever it is they need to do. So if I get them running well right away, then we start doing you know uh, a workout on the treadmill. Yeah. Um, and I've done it. I've had one client actually was uh, running down a street and had her daughter in a golf cart holding the phone so I could see what she was doing. And I was using her daughter to re re relay information to her mother while she was running. So <laughs> that is interesting. Uh, I got to do that. Yeah. So they could find me dshumanperformance.com okay. is a good place to find me. I do have Canadian clients. I should tell you, I, I, I have a, a client that I, I just spoke to yesterday, lives up in Edmonton. And, uh, you know, so I'm not, I, I'm not beneath dealing in Canada. <laughs> oh, I know. I know. And, and I know that you, you have worked with Canadian athletes before. Um, so, Richard, thank you so much. Uh, once again, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Thank, thank you. you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your valuable information with us. And I know that I learned a lot and a lot of people have also. Um, Thank you for listening, everybody. I hope you all learned as much as I have, and I hope you guys enjoy the rest of your day. Richard, this book is very valuable. And for those, Thank like you. he said, you know what? Get out there. Go out and get it. It's valuable information. You are going to love it. Canadian on the cover. Face, <laughs> face, Denny. That's right. Face, Denny, right there. And this is not just for OCR athletes. I mean, trail runners. Yeah. Runners. Okay? Go get this book. Okay? Um, uh, Richard, once again, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Thank you. Uh, it's a pleasure, and I hope that we can do this again soon. Um, and uh, that's it. Everybody, have yourselves a great day. Richard, have yourself a great day. Thank you. You too.